My savings was gone. I'd sold my house. I'd went through all that money. My credit was pretty much destroyed at this point. I was maxed out on credit. I had my car repossessed. My girlfriend left me. My dog died. It was the, pretty much like the worst case scenario you can think of. I didn't know what to do because I didn't have enough coffee. I didn't have enough coffee bags or coffee labels. I didn't have enough people to fulfill these orders, enough shipping labels, enough boxes. I didn't have enough anything. I made every mistake in the book in the beginning. The, and the toughest part was... The next day, Good Morning America called. And they're like, hey, we just read about your coffee and we're not that far from you. Would you like to have your coffee on Good Morning America tomorrow? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, this sounds great. And they're like, great, we'll be there in four hours. Well, thank you. My name is Michael Brown. I'm the owner and CEO, I guess, and founder of Deathwish Coffee Company. We are a coffee company located in Round Lake, New York. We've been deemed the world's strongest coffee. We've been around since 2011. That's when we kind of got our first start just last year. We had our best year ever. We're lucky enough to win the Intuit Small Business Big Game competition. We won a 30-second Super Bowl commercial, fully paid for by Intuit. So thank you very much, Intuit. Those guys are uh, awesome over there. Yeah, I don't know. We just had a crazy adventure. You know, I have a decent sized team now. There's 30 of us over here. So how did you end up getting that Super Bowl commercial? That sounds kind of cool. Let's talk about that first. All right, great. Because I'm not really great at just kind of going off <laughs> off the cuff here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll just keep asking questions from here. But let's go ahead and start at the Super Bowl commercial because that sounds pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, fantastic. So in 2015, I was on Facebook just paging around trying to see how my Facebook ads were doing and making sure my customers were happy with us. And I came across a Facebook ad for Intuit's Small Business Big Game competition. And this is a competition that they had done two years before. And I recognize it as a huge opportunity for any small business. The winner at that time was Goldie Blocks. They make these engineering toys for young girls. Really cool company. Anyways, so I'm like, wow, I'm going to win this. And that's kind of my thought process. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, we're going to win this. So I got my team around. I'm like, hey, guys, I'm going to sign us up for this competition where they're going to basically pick a small business to have a Super Bowl commercial. And I'm like, I think with kind of the momentum we had, because we had a lot of momentum at the time, we were doubling in size year after year. I mean, we were still small. We were still, I think, a at the time, we were a $6 million company. We were doing about $6 million in revenue. I'm just like, we're going to win it. So we filled out the application. And we submitted, they made you answer a few questions and they made you do like a video. And initially it was kind of like a American Idol type contest. You had to like get people to go to your link and vote for you. And we had a pretty decent email list at the time. So that was our initial strategy. He's like, oh, we'll just send this link to our email list and you know, people will click on it, vote for us. And hopefully we could win. And I think it worked initially because we got chosen to be a top 10 finalist. Once we were notified that we were in the top 10, we had to get more votes to our link. So at that point, you know, it was really competitive and we weren't even making coffee at that point. It was all hands on deck. There was only six or seven of us and we were spending our entire like 20 hours a day just trying to get people to go vote for our link and thinking of every different way we could do it. We were running online ads. We were doing local events. We were calling every influencer that we could think of, ones that didn't even know who we are. We were just asking for tons of favors. And we were able to make it to the top three. And then after we were in the top three, I think at that stage in the competition, and I could be wrong, but it was more up to Intuit to pick the final winner. And they picked us. 
And so uh, what does a 30-second commercial usually cost for Super Bowl? In 2016, it was, I believe it was $3 million for a 30-second ad. I think with the actual filming of the production of the commercial, I mean, I think that was a, at least a million-dollar commercial that they put together for us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, probably about $4 million. I don't know exactly, but right. it was somewhere around there. Do you think you were just driven based on what this advertisement can do for you, for your company? Or was it like competition that you wanted to show and beat everybody else? I mean, what what was the reasoning behind or your drive behind it? Well, I am very competitive. So I think that had something to do with it. But I think I recognize, and this is what I told my team. I'm like, hey, guys, what would you do for $4 million? How hard would you have to work to get a $4 million piece of marketing? And I'll tell you what, I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say it at a conference I was at, and I 100% agree with him that a Super Bowl commercial is still the best bargain in marketing right now. Just the amount of return we got from that commercial for that 30 seconds was incredible. Yeah, well, can you tell us about that? Because that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Well, besides the actual commercial itself, right, where for 30 seconds, you're in front of 110 million people or your brand is. Besides that, all the lead up going into the Super Bowl commercial, going into the big day. So they released the commercials on, I believe it's the Thursday before Super Bowl Sunday. At that time, all the media markets pick it up and they try to judge who has the best commercial and they start to do commercial previews before the Super Bowl. So, I mean, that generated a ton of buzz. Plus, since we were a small company in this competition, we were able to get on, I think, all the morning shows at the time. Good Morning America, USA Today. So on top of just the Super Bowl, it was all that built up buzz moving into it was huge. And then at the actual time the Super Bowl commercial went live, which was in the third quarter, I had the back end of my website up on my phone. I was watching the traffic go up. Were you at a Super Bowl party or what? Where were you at? Oh, yeah. Into it through this amazing party for me out in San Francisco in like this penthouse of their PR firm. They did an incredible job. They had ice sculptures for us. and Of you? No, 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 no. <laughs> the Death Wish logo, though. The Death Wish logo. And it was incredible. They really like went over the top. All right. Well, tell us when you're looking at your phone, uh, what's going on? Because I can imagine there's a lot of anticipation. Yeah. So we had right around 110 people on the site at the time initially. And then commercial goes live. And I'm just watching these numbers climb. And it's updating about every five seconds. And it's you know, it's 110. And then it jumps up to like 30,000. Wow. 40,000. 50,000, 50,000, 60,000. I'm watching. It just keeps going up. And I think it peaked at, I think it was like 140,000 before it started to start to tail off. But, you know, Shopify was our, or is our backend server. And we notified them ahead of time. And they said they had a team of 12 people there making sure the site didn't go down. So they were making sure it didn't crash. And it didn't. And, and it stayed high for a while. Stayed in the tens of thousands, I think, throughout the next day. I think it was our best day at the time. We have since beat that day in 2017. We had our best sales day at the time. But in actuality, it was really only a couple hours. Right. But we did. I think we did about a little over, I think it was a little, right around a half million dollars in, in about two hours. I mean, well, that's pretty exciting. So is that what you anticipated? Or did it exceed your expectations? Or what were your thoughts before it aired and afterwards? Yeah, it exceeded my expectations. My thoughts were, well, I had tons of thoughts. You know, I, I was doing the math and I'm like, based on how much traffic's going to hit the site, you know, and I had all these scenarios drawn out. Actually, I had, I had a best case scenario, the worst case scenario and the probable scenario. And this was, it was towards our best case scenario. It turned out great. 
not only because all those people hit the site and we had a great sales day, but we were able to be introduced to such a large audience at once and collect a lot of that data that comes in when people are hitting your site that we were able to remarket to these people going forward. I and mean, we were able to make real fans of the brand that day and really grew our customer base. So we were able to continually put ourselves in front of these customers and, and that helped us out the next year. Well, that was in 2016. So in 2017, like I said, that wasn't our best day. We had our best day, I think, over a year later. But that's only because we could remark to those customers and provide them with more value. Well, I mean, that sounds like an awesome experience. And based on what you're saying, you sound pretty analytical because you're talking about your best case scenario, your worst case scenario. It's pretty cool, obviously, experience with the Super Bowl commercial. But how about we talk about Deathwish Coffee a little bit more and what makes you all different from other coffee companies? And then we'll reel it back to the beginning and when you got started. Yeah. So the reason we're different than the rest of the coffees is, well, we do, it's actually a blend. It's a blend of Arabica and Robusta beans or Robusta beans, depends how you want to say it. Back when I owned my coffee shop and I was really into the third wave coffee, I was hearing a lot of negative talk about Robusta beans and how they're like the inferior coffee bean and tastes like shit, just a bunch of bad stuff. And it's like, yeah, I would never be caught dead roasting these beans. I'd hear roasters say, and I'm like, they're really emotional about this product. I mean, I get it. I guess, but anyways, everyone, everyone in the third wave was really focused on this Arabica bean and, and their different types and how great they are. And don't get me wrong, there's many, many fantastic Arabica beans out there from all over the world, and they are quite delicious. But one thing that they don't have is over the Robusta beans is the amount of caffeine. At the time, being behind the counter at my coffee shop, watching my money dwindle away, I kept hearing my customers come in every day and they were always asking me for my strongest coffee. And they want the caffeine. That's what they want in their lives. They need that extra kick to get them through the day. So knowing that these beans have so much more caffeine, I went to a SCA convention and Seattle. And I walked through this entire floor of this convention center, looking at all these booths and all of the craziest coffee stuff you've ever seen in your life. But at the last booth, there was this, I'm sorry, the last aisle, there was a small booth with these people from India. And, you know, they had just a couple AirPods out. And I tried their coffee and I thought it was the best coffee that was in the entire place. And I'm like, oh, what's this? They're like, oh, this is our Robusta bean from India. And I'm like, ah, I'm like, I really thought this was supposed to taste a lot more bitter and pretty much I thought it was supposed to taste awful and it didn't. It tasted incredible. So I grabbed their card and I got a sample of their beans. I started blending it with some Arabica beans I had, some Peruvian beans that were really sweet. And I just put together this blend that not only I thought tasted like the best coffee I've ever had, but it also like made my jaw almost want to lock up. It, it gave me so much energy. My heart was pumping out of my chest. And I'm like, I think those customers that come into my store, they're going to really want to try this. So I did. I, I made a batch for them and I gave it to them one day and they thought it was amazing. They came in the next day. They're like, oh, we'll take a cup of the, what you gave us yesterday. <laughs> and uh, I put it online. I started selling it shortly after. And that's kind of the beginning of Deathwish Coffee. At the time, it didn't even have a name. It was just you know, that strong coffee. <laughs> you talked about like a third wave of coffee. I just want to make sure we understand the basics. And I believe you're like talking about the different types of beans. Yeah. I mean, could you just talk about the basics and the differences of these coffees for like someone who doesn't drink much coffee? Yeah, absolutely. I actually didn't even start drinking coffee until my late 20s. So all of it was very new to me in my late 20s. But yes, there's many varieties of coffee beans, but there's two basic types. There's the Arabica bean, which are harder to grow. They're typically grown in higher elevations. 
but they have a like a tons of flavor profiles and uh, I mean you can really you can get into arabica beans like you can get into wine with like all the different types and varieties and flavor profiles and ways of brewing it ways of roasting it ways of processing it it's numerous and that's what you're going to find at your local coffee shops at your Starbucks at your any high end coffee shops as well so the robusta bean now that bean has been around for a lot longer and it's kind of the it's what the markets are based on the, you know the coffee commodity it's more of a I don't know, like a mass market product. You know what I mean? It's easier to grow. You can grow it. I think Brazil right now is the largest exporter. Yeah, it's just a much sturdier crop right now. And I think the benefit of it is the caffeine, able to get the job done, but it's not as highly coveted by the people in the coffee industry who are trying to sell $5 cups of coffee. And so what was the third wave thing that I was hearing about? So third wave, I guess specifically is this came on, I think right after, you know, Starbucks got big. And that's the third wave is more about having coffee be more of like a, I don't know, I, I want to say, I want to use the word art, but not really. It's like the art of coffee. You know what I mean? There's very, in coffee shops, it's higher end or I could be in specialty drinks. To me, that's what third wave coffee is. It's less about the coffee at your work coffee maker. It's more higher end. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, glad I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. Your whole thing is that you're trying to get the pack in the most caffeine and at Deathwish Coffee? Yeah, a lot of caffeine. Still have a great flavor. But we're not, I mean, we only have one blend of coffee. We only have one coffee. It's Deathwish Coffee. We're not trying to bring out the floral notes that may or may not be present. We're just roasting some high-quality Arabica beans. And, and we're hitting our flavor profiles and our roast profiles. But it's more, you're going to enjoy the flavor, but you're going to notice the kick. Well, let's go ahead and take it back to, if you don't mind, when you graduated college, I was looking at your profile. You graduated sunny Albany in 2003? Yeah, I wish it was sunny. It was, it was SUNY, State <laughs> University of New York yeah. at Albany. Uh, yes, I graduated there in, I think it was 2005. And then I got my master's in accounting from St. Rose, which was a small private school down the road from Albany. I think I finished that up in 2007. I guess that's where kind of maybe the analytical mind comes in. But where does the coffee making come in? Because to go from accountant to coffee maker, is that the deal? Yeah, I was working for the New York State Comptroller's office and I was having a hard time making it through the day. After work, I went home. I was talking to my roommate at the time and I said, Frank, I'm like, I have a hard time making it through this day. I'm like, every after lunch, I'm like, I could barely keep my eyes open. And he's like, oh, do you drink any coffee after lunch? I'm like, no, I don't. I'm like, I don't drink coffee at all. He's like, you should give it a shot. So I did. I gave it a shot. Went to the coffee maker the next day, had a cup, and I powered through the rest of the day. And I thought, I can't believe that this hasn't been in my life up until now. So actually, after I quit my job at the controller's office, not very long afterwards, I started... What's a controller so people understand? New York State controller just manages the New York State's money. <laughs> nice. And then so you're managing the tax money. And then you said you're... Sorry to cut you off. You're saying you're quit, but I want to just make sure that you wanted to get into coffee and did you save any money before doing it? So I did have a little bit of savings, not a ton. But yeah, I mean, my decision to stop being an accountant was, it wasn't well thought out. I, <laughs> I had two bosses at the time and they invited me to a, a meeting to just those two and myself. And they're like, Mike, we notice you do well here. You do a good job, but you're taking a lot of time off. 
basically anytime I earned any time, I took it off immediately. <laughs> they're like, they're like, you've been coming in late and I wasn't being the best employee employee <laughs> so they're like well where do you see yourself in a couple of years and i'm like wow like that's so i kind of sat back for about 10 seconds and thought about it and i'm like well i don't really see myself here and i really i'm not that happy so i'm gonna put in my two weeks so i put in my two weeks right away and they were like well like no and like we didn't want you to do that we were just <laughs> wanting to see where your head's at <laughs> but i put in my two weeks right then and there and I was gone and I was unemployed for about a year after that. And I just hung out in coffee shops. That's basically what I did because my friends were working. I thought it'd be cool. You know, you know, I'm not working for a year. I can go on all these adventures. No, it's not like that because, you know, your friends aren't around. They're all working, trying to make it. I have a little bit of savings in my account, but it's I was going through it pretty quick. Are we talking like 40 or 50K if you didn't work for a year and you're just kind of going to coffee shops? I think I had. No, I had more than that. I had about $100,000. And so did you just think in your head that you're like, okay, maybe I'll come up with a business idea after you put in that two weeks notice? Is that what was that a thought process? Yeah, I think that was part of it. Part of it was I really didn't know what I was going to do. I think I just wanted to use that time to kind of just really get my thoughts together and explore what options are out there. And well, you needed some more vacation time. It sounded like it reminded me. I watched The Office a lot. I think Pam said at one point, like she gets excited every year about days she gets to take off, and she used all her vacation days by the time February hit that year, and that's the longest <laughs> that she had went. Like usually, it'd been a week into January or two weeks into January. So, well, I mean, I guess it's important to understand too that you weren't happy, but it was kind of funny that those guys actually brought that meeting upon you, and then you made that realization there. I guess. Yeah, I'm sure they could tell in my work. I would spend half the day trying to avoid being at my desk. You know, I was sleeping in my car some days. <laughs> I was going for long walks. <laughs> right. Okay. So tell us what you did while you're in those coffee shops or I guess coming up with the uh, idea for Deathwish Coffee. Yeah. I mean, in the coffee shops, I was just hanging out and just enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying talking with people. I Eventually, I thought to myself, Hey, I'm spending so much time in these coffee shops. I might as well try to open my own or buy one that's already existing. So I actually, I tried to buy one and it didn't work out. Uh, the finances weren't there. Then I tried again a couple months later at a different location and the buyers were very motivated to sell. It was 2008. So they were, uh, <laughs> I think they wanted to get out just as much as I wanted to get in. So we made a deal. I felt like I got a great bargain on a coffee shop. They were happy to see it go. And they kind of trained me a little bit on the inner workings of the coffee shop and how to run it. But I was by no means an expert. And I think I spent probably about 80% of the money I had saved on the coffee shop. And then I think I went through the, the rest <laughs> in the next, probably in the next uh, six to eight months. I went through it pretty quick. So when you go to get financing for that, was it like the owner giving you financing or how do you buy a coffee shop? Oh, no, I bought it with cash, with my savings. Okay. So, yeah, so I didn't have to get financing at the time. Right. And so you end up buying the coffee shop. I guess you were just kind of hanging out before. So what was your work life then before and after buying the coffee shop? Because before it sounded like it was just kind of chilling out and stuff. Did you have to end up working a lot more and working on the weekends when you bought that coffee shop? Yes. When I bought that coffee shop, I pretty much worked open to close, I think, for the first couple of years. You know, I was there as whenever it was open, I was there trying to learn as much as possible, trying to figure out why the money was going out the door and not coming back in. I made every mistake in the book in the beginning. Why was the money going out the door and not coming in? Just so hopefully anyone who's listening can learn from your experience buying a coffee shop. Yeah, it's just mostly overhead. I was on a major street in Saratoga Springs. The rent wasn't cheap. Electricity to power all those refrigerators in the coffee shop, that's not cheap. You know, there's like $1,000 electric bills coming in. We had a 
a giant inventory for such a small shop. For some reason, we were trying to be everything for everyone. So that was kind of a big mistake that I didn't recognize coming in, which is such a vast difference than, you know, what we are now. Deathers Coffee has one product, one blend of coffee beans. Um, we're pretty sure what we are. But yeah, at the time, I was doing soup, salads, sandwiches, bakery items, egg sandwiches, full breakfasts. I had a whole candy store in the back with about a thousand different pieces of candy, different types of candy. It was a nightmare. Like you do an inventory, but that took half my time. I mean, it took me years to figure this out and to minimize my inventory and to really make it simple because I did have quite a few customers that well, they loved that one product that we had, but they were really the only customer who liked it. And I really felt bad taking that away from them because then they're like, oh, that was the only thing I wanted here. And now they're gone. So it was a tough lesson. You started minimizing what you were selling just over time, just because it was just getting too much. Is that what happened? Or is there anything else that you kind of transformed the coffee company from what it was to what it became? Yeah, I mean, it was always been a coffee shop. I think when I created that and started to make that a business of its own, I think that's when I really kind of separated myself from the business. And I basically gave the store over to my manager to run. And just letting go of that made the business able to take off in its own direction while I focused on just selling the one product. I really had a hard time, and I still do it to some extent, of letting go of things that I'm working on, even when people are much better at doing it than I am. It is a hard one to swallow. So you purchased Cabo Shop, it sounded like around end of 2008, beginning of 2009, and then you started making this blend of coffee when, based on your bio, early 2011? Yep, early 2011. Yeah, I was pretty much, boy, at that time, I was, it was pretty much... I was either going to you know, do something else. I had to find a new source of revenue because my savings was gone. I'd sold my house. I'd went through all that money. My credit was pretty much destroyed at this point. I was maxed out on credit. I had my car repossessed. My girlfriend left me. My dog died. It was the, pretty much like the worst case scenario you can think of that was happening to me. And I was living behind my mom's garage. And yeah, I was really having a, a big pity session with myself <laughs> trying to figure out like you know the, and the toughest part was is you, you don't want to be a failure that's probably like my biggest fear and i've been telling everyone this whole time i've bought this coffee shop that things are going great you know just a lot lying to everyone you know oh, how is everything going oh it's going great thanks for asking you should come in and buy a cup of coffee sometime <laughs> i don't know it was bad and i don't even know if anybody really recognized how dire the situation was I want to talk about that before we stumble because it seems like obviously that's a lot compacted in those two years because even to me, it sounded like everything was going great till you just told me about all these issues. Yeah. So, I mean, let's go over that because you were an accountant too. So I guess you're looking at the numbers, right? A lot or no? Or are you just focused on making the coffee? No, I was looking at the numbers okay. too. And I, you know, I could see the savings dwindling away. We had a 2008, 2009, they weren't great years for the economy. The people, the traffic walking down the street was a lot less. I was making some mistakes, nothing huge, but yeah, it was just like slow, constant bleeding. So it wasn't that one thing that was impactful. It was just like money was just dripping out of my account and it wasn't going back in. It's a kind of a seasonal business in Saratoga because it's so cold in the wintertime. You'd think winter would be great for coffee, but there's no street traffic. Nobody wanted to come out of their house. I think we had a couple of very cold years around that time too. So there were some days where we wouldn't even make $200 and I'd just be sitting in the store just watching it snow outside. And I don't know. I, I'm like, okay. I didn't recognize that we were running out of money. So I'm like, I'll just sell my house and I'll just roll that money over in the business until the business starts to pick up. 
And then, you know, that sales tax bill would come in and I hadn't put enough money aside to cover it. So I was like, well, I'll just skip this tax bill this this time. I'll get it. I'll get it next time when business picks up. And it really uh, starts to snowball, starts to snowball. Yeah, real quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing that you've even sold your house that you're like thinking that it's going to work out. And then like you're saying, moving back at the mom's place, but or behind the her place. But yeah. Oh, I figured if I just minimize my living expenses to basically nothing, and they were, I've minimized, I got rid of anything that cost me money. The only thing I really needed was my car. When that got repoed, that was very humbling because I was like, wow, this is the one thing I need to do my job. So I had to borrow from the business to get that back. So you were talking about two years later, that's when you kind of stumbled upon your own coffee that you're making. I mean, was this a big turning point as far as from the coffee shop? Because at this point, it doesn't seem like things were going too well. Yeah, it was going real bad. And I think I was getting desperate Mm -hmm. to the point where I have to make money somewhere. If I'm not selling coffee in the shop, I'm going to try selling it online. Not that many people were doing it at that time. And I was reading a lot of books about online marketing. And I was thinking, okay, maybe this is my next move here. I started talking to some people in the online selling world and they were kind of motivating me to give it a shot. And my customers love the coffee. They thought I should sell it online as well. So I started doing it. I made a website one night. I designed my, well, the logo is a little different now, but I designed like a logo for this coffee and I, I got a name for it. I had this image in my head of having this black bag of coffee on a shelf with a poison label on it. And having people walk in and pick it up and be like, what the heck is this? And really, really been intrigued by, you know, the almost like the danger of it all. I had this cup koozie I was holding at the time and it said death wish on it, or do you have a death wish or something like that? And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a cool name for a coffee. So that inspired me to pick that name. And I made this website and you know, for a while, the website just sat there. But eventually I think I, I ran a Facebook ad and got my first sale. And I was couldn't believe I finally said it. It didn't even take that long after I put the Facebook ad up until I had my first sale. I believe it took maybe three days. I didn't even have the packaging together yet. I just had a, a logo and a website and some beans. So I went to Staples. I put together a packaging for this product. I mailed it, sent it out and followed up. And I got a good review from the customer. And I used that review on my website. I leveraged that review with a couple others that I got from you know some friends who I gave the coffee to who liked it. That was like a snowballing effect too, because, you know, I'd sold one bag and then I think a month later I sold another bag, a week later, another bag, and then two bags a week, three bags a week. And then it really started to like, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm actually seeing some growth here. And I think that's when I thought I had some is when I started to see reorders and selling more than a bag a month. When it started to bring in actual money and my goal at the time, I'm like, if I could just bring in, I think I said $5,000 extra, you know, that could really help me cover the bills and keep the coffee shop going. And move out of mom's house, right? Yeah, get, get out of mom's. That took longer than you thought, <laughs> you'd think. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I mean, well, I think that's important to first kind of just set a small goal, at least in your head, to give you something to shoot for. So that was the idea is like, okay, I can bring this online, sell it that way. How did you learn to make the website? I guess you told us how you did the packaging by going to Staples or whatever to put that together. But just tell us about learning initially. You said you were reading about online marketing and then putting together that website to get your first sale. I read a book by Jim Cockrum at the time. I can't remember the actual name of the book, but I read this book and I, how did I learn how to make the website? I'm trying to remember. I went to a a website called Weebly at the time. I don't know if it's any good anymore, but at the time it was basically a drag and drop type site where you could, you know, I didn't know how to code or anything, but I could, you know, put something together and, and it wasn't the prettiest website ever. It was very, actually looking back on it, it's a little embarrassing. 
my team, they use this website called the Wayback Machine and they'll go and they'll find the first website I had and break it out and show visitors sometimes. And it's embarrassing, but at the same time, it was very effective. It had, I think, all the elements to have a, for a good site. It had uh, calls to action everywhere and I don't know, I thought it was great. You had a simple, I guess, website creator that you can easily put on there and then you learn to call to actions, which is important to get people to buy. So why don't you... I had some trust certifications, a lot of <laughs> testimonials on there. Uh, from you um, and your mom? Anything, any... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so from there, let's talk about how you're able to improve and, I guess, increase sales in the shop and online. So... After I felt things were going good, one of my best baristas at the coffee shop, she tried to quit on me. And I'm like, I'm like, why would you want to quit? She's like, well, I, I can't remember the reasons. I don't think she just liked it anymore. She didn't want to be a barista. I'm like, well, I have this small side project going. If you want to come work for me, I, I think if I'm a little bit more consistent with posting on social media and following up with customers, it could do a lot better. And I'm like, I can like set you up in an office somewhere and you know, you can work from there. You don't have to come into the coffee shop. And she thought it was a great idea. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I didn't have enough money for an office or anything. So behind my mom's garage, I set up like part of my living space. I set up this office that she could work out of. And she came in every morning to work on basically reaching out to customers, reaching out to influencers, sending out samples and posting on social media. So she did that every morning and I'd go work in the coffee shop for the rest of the day. I'd never even see her. I just knew she showed up in the morning because we're so consistent or she was so consistent, we were seeing some impacts from all of our efforts. You know, sales were picking up to the point where I stopped working behind the counter in the coffee shop and just started working at fulfilling products out of the basement of my coffee shop. So I just bagged the coffee down there, seal it, ship it and send it. And all of a sudden, like she'd be at this little temporary office, I guess, that you set up at your mom's place in the back. She was doing that. So, I mean, that must have been interesting for her. And how were you paying her? Because it sounds like one extra person in expense. Was she working for free? Yeah, that was the risk. I was a risk right. at the time. I'm like, I didn't have enough money to pay her. <laughs> so the only the only way I'd be able to pay her is if, if I succeeded or if we succeeded in, in making enough sales to pay her. And we almost immediately started to pay off. So yeah, it was a risk I took. And luckily, we started to sell enough coffee to pay her, but not much more than that. You know what I mean? We didn't make much more than that. So it wasn't like I could pay any extra bills with the efforts, but we were gaining traction and we were building a, a decent customer list. So what did you sell her on other than I guess she wanted a change? Did you let her know unless y'all make enough money that you're not going to be able to pay her? No, 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 I didn't say that. <laughs> this is important. What happens if someone's in a similar situation and they, it sounds like you approached it the right way. So yeah, maybe I should have told her that look, you know, in hindsight, but I didn't. I mean, at the time she probably knew it was a risk because I don't think she'd even heard about this side project I had. It's not like I was selling Deathwish coffee in my coffee shop at the time. I wasn't. I was kind of like a secret thing I was just doing to see if it worked. Almost like an experiment, but I didn't want to put myself out there totally with it just in case it failed again. And you just told her what you pay her like 10 bucks an hour to help with the social media stuff. Yeah, I paid her hourly. I, I think she's still on the books of the coffee shop. So I didn't have to like, I don't think I had a new actual business set up at the time. I just operating under the umbrella of my coffee shop. Yeah, no, that's important. I mean, I'm actually doing the same thing with my podcast with like my own company. It's just like, you don't need to go out and make a new LLC and all this stuff. If you're experimenting and seeing how it works, you know, I think you need to get some actual traction before setting it all up and saying, oh, this is your title. Like, I guess you could make her chief marketing officer or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is a pain in the ass later on down the line to switch all those accounts over and stuff. But yes, in initially, you don't have to do that. 
just important to just be simple, I think, and just without overthinking it. Because what happens if it doesn't succeed and you do all that work and you could have been focusing on maybe growing at first. But well, it sounds like that's 2011. We're in 2018 now. I'm trying to figure out when there was a switch because so far it didn't sound like things have been going so well from 2008 to 2011. Yeah, no, it wasn't. So between 2011 and 2013, it was pretty much status quo. Things were growing and, and doing well on the Deathwish coffee side. I was able to make that extra $5,000 I need to keep the coffee shop running, but I still wasn't paying off any debt. The online sales had become such a, they've been coming at a much quicker velocity that I actually brought Megan back to the coffee shop. She was now working in the basement with me and helping fulfill these orders and bring them to the post office. So things started going pretty good on the online coffee sales side. One of the strategies we were using was we were taking out samples and sending it to, I, I call them influencers, but you know, news reporters, bloggers, celebrities rock stars, anyone who had an audience online. We just surf the web for half the day, make a list of many contacts as we can find that we could reach out to, try to get their information so we can send them a coffee to sample. And hopefully, you know, we thought, if you write about this, at the time, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy. We fail most of the time. I think probably 95 out of 100 of these requests were denied. But people are looking for stuff to write about. And if you can provide them with something exciting and something noteworthy, and especially if they like coffee, in our case, you know, it really helped to get them to write a piece on us. Now, I think it's a little tougher because influencer marketing is such a, people expect money from it now. But at the time, we weren't paying anyone to do it. It was just all free. And we'd help them write articles and stuff by having it pretty much ready to go. Yeah. And where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, my, the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. Yeah, so what have you thought of our group calls so far? I like the proposal so far. I like how insightful it is and it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode and I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly. It's genuine. And so that was helpful. Sounds like you were early on on some of that stuff, even when you took out a Facebook ad, but that was like 2011. And I don't think many people were even talking about that. They weren't talking about the social media influencing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What worked and what didn't as far as like, were you targeting people who wrote about coffee or were you targeting? Yeah, no, not really. It was almost like a buckshot approach. You know, I had a form letter that I had written out and it was basically like, Here's our coffee. This is what it's about. This is what we're trying to accomplish. It's you know very strong. Basically, just a forum letter, and I just had her send it out to everyone, and and then a little sample of the coffee. So it'd be a little package that you'd send to all these maybe celebrities or anyone random that you could find. Exactly. Yeah, mostly bloggers, news reporters. Those were where we found the most benefit. And actually, the neat thing about these bloggers at the time, and I'm pretty sure this is the way it still is because I've actually heard an online not too long ago. Once one blogger writes about it, all the other bloggers and news reporters, 
they all pretty much get their news and information from their peers. And this one guy from Cool Material was the name of the blog. And it was a website that basically just had the coolest new items on the market. He wrote about our coffee and gave it a great review. And from there... And what was it called again? Cool Material. Cool Material. Okay. Yeah. And from there, I think NPR heard of it and they wrote a little piece on it. And from there, uh, CNN wrote a little piece on it and then... Boy, it just started really snowballing really quick. And it was still just Megan and I. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm like, this is starting to get some traction here. I'm like, this is starting to work. And all of a sudden MTV writes a, a article on our coffee and they're all using the same pictures and the same text. Like they're basically just copy and pasting this article and just distributing it to their audience. So all of a sudden this one sample we sent out is all over the internet and it's starting to catch fire a little bit. Not long after that, I think it was about the next day, Good Morning America called. This is on March, I think it was March 5th or March 13th, 2015. And they're like, hey, we just read about your coffee and we're not that far from you. Would you like to have your coffee on Good Morning America tomorrow? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, this sounds great. And they're like, great, we'll be there in four hours. So literally four hours later, I had Good Morning America at my coffee shop interviewing me about uh, this strong coffee I'd come up with. And they took a sample back down. They opened the Good Morning America with the coffee the next day. And man, that was that right there was that was the changing moment in my business where we went from selling yeah, a couple bags a day to enough to actually create a business on. Yeah. So you're saying a couple bags a day. And then how much was it after right then? Yeah. So the Good Morning America piece after that, I believe over 20,000 orders came in at that point. It was so many orders that I didn't know what to do because I didn't have enough coffee. I didn't have enough coffee bags or coffee labels. I didn't have enough people to fulfill these orders, enough shipping labels, enough boxes. I didn't have enough anything. It was all coming in and I knew my inventory was gone, but I also knew how broke I was. So I'm watching my PayPal account rise and I was on Amazon at that time. I was watching the Amazon sales come in. I was on eBay too. The eBay sales were going through the roof, but I couldn't shut it off. I didn't have the... I mean, I could have shut. I mean, I'm, physically, I could have shut it off, but I couldn't shut it off mentally because I was just seeing like finally something worked, yeah. like something really started to work well and it was powerful. And so actually, I went up to my coffee shop and I pulled some customers that are friends of mine out of the coffee shop and I asked them if they would help me fulfill these orders. So they came in and they started working with me and I did as, everything I could to get these orders fulfilled. And it actually took 30 days to get all the coffee out the door and to get caught up again. Yeah. So tell us more about it. So you're freaking out the same time yet you're excited. I imagine overjoyed because at this point, it didn't seem like it seemed like everything was kind of slowly going downhill as far as net income, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, everything was I mean, the online sales were keeping the coffee shop afloat. But like I said, I wasn't getting ahead. I wasn't able to pay off any debt. I wasn't able to pay off these taxes that I had. And not only did I had sales tax due, but I also had like my homeowners tax due. And I was getting these letters from uh, I don't know who they're from. Basically, basically, your mom to pay rent. People tell me they're going to take. No, no, it wasn't my mom. It was because, oh, actually, I forgot to tell you at the time I did have an investment property that I had gotten in my accounting years. But so that was actually one of my only sources of for a good period of time was the rent I was getting from my tenants. But even at that, I wasn't able to keep the mortgage up to date or the, or the house taxes up to date. So they had they were going to take my house pretty soon. Yeah, it all sounds like a mess financially. So I mean, I, I'd be seem overjoyed. And so you 
said you asked your friends to start helping. I mean, did you start paying them or like walk us through this somewhat dream scenario? You know that you have so many orders, you don't know what to do. Yeah. So many orders didn't know what to do, but I had money coming in, a lot of money coming in. I think I had $24,000 in one account and I was like, okay, you know, that's enough. And I'm trying to budget it out. Like I need to buy this much coffee, this many bags. And I was able to pay the guys that came in to help me work. And at that point, I think I paid them through the coffee shop. But it was, you know, every day they'd be like, hey, Mike, is it okay if we come back tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, come back tomorrow. And like I said, by the time the the end had come and we had fulfilled all the orders, I didn't want this just to be like a one hit wonder type thing. You know what I mean? I wanted to have these customers as repeat customers. So I went back through and I actually refunded probably about 80% of these customers. I refunded them all their shipping back because we had a shipping charge at the time. I'm like, obviously we didn't ship on time. So here's your shipping back. And I had a, a letter written up to everyone that basically told them what happened and, and why they didn't get their coffee on time and, and how like Good Morning America came and it was a big to do and we weren't ready. And you know, most people were very, very supportive. Some people were just like, whatever, you know, kiss my ass, get out of here. <laughs> but but I was able to you know salvage enough of those relationships where people did end up buying again, which is good. I think that was smart to write that letter too, because I think they understood that versus you not saying anything and it being a month late and not like refunding shipping. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, I reached out to, you know, I had, I sent everyone an email and it was, yeah, it was very, I was very transparent about the whole thing. Right. And from there, I mean, Amazon and eBay, they weren't as nice as <laughs> some of those customers. So I got kicked off of Amazon and got kicked off of eBay for life. For life. And <laughs> yeah, that's what they told me. <laughs> Pretty much don't ever come back. And yeah, had a lifetime ban from eBay. Amazon was, believe it or not, Amazon, after a few phone calls, I was able to negotiate some terms with them where as long as I, what did I say? I said, I'll never try to fulfill my own products again. I will only fulfill through your FBA program. And they thought that was good enough to allow me to sell on their platform again, which is good. eBay eventually let me back on, but I still to this day have limits on, on how many I can sell a month. It's ridiculous. I get it. <laughs> I imagine you're drinking a lot of Death Wish coffee at this time. Is that true? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I was drinking so much coffee. And the Good, way, Good Morning America, when we were on that show, it really kind of got a whole nother media frenzy started behind it. And I was, boy, I think for two weeks after that, I was doing every interview with every major publication ever telling them all about my coffee, which was quite the adventure. So sales really picked up. We really grew a great customer base during this time. So much that, you know, even after I refunded everyone, paid the employees, and had, there was finally money left over. And I even started paying off some of my debt, which is good. I was able to save my house from getting repossessed. And there's money left over where I could, we were operating out of the basement of my coffee shop. And this place was probably only 10 feet by 20 feet. You know, it was 200 square feet. It was tiny. And we didn't have room to move down there. So I ended up getting a small warehouse, a 1,500 square foot warehouse that I leased out just down the road. And when we moved into there, I felt like that was a point where I was like, okay, you know, the Good Morning America, that kind of solidified us as a business. And now we actually have our own headquarters. And the space was so giant, I thought at the time that I'm like, how are we ever going to fill this? But we put some desks there and we got a, a couple, you know, we got our packaging supplies in, our coffee in. And a year later, we, we were able to buy a, our own roaster because at the time we were just using toll roasting. We were using the roasters of our other roasters in the area. So they were doing the roasting for us. But we were finally able to get our own. And yeah, you know, for a while, it was, it was going great, real great. And actually, it never really slowed down. Like things kept doubling. We started really focusing on our online marketing efforts and email list building that we are able to grow our business 
over a hundred percent for the next couple of years. And at the time, what was your like lifestyle like as compared to before? I mean, were you still just working all the time? Yeah, still working all the time. Maybe working more. Right. It's just I was doing different types of work. I saw the coffee shop. I had to. I mean, I had a manager in there, and he he was running it. But I still had to. There's still small things that only I could do. You know what I mean? Like some like some contracts, leasing stuff, dealing with the city. Yeah, a lot of like little things that aren't a big deal, but they're kind of annoying when you're trying to run another business at the same time. So did you eventually sell the coffee shop? I did. It took me a while. I just sold it last year, last October, to the manager who's been there the whole time. Him and I have been friends for forever. It was good for him because he's like, Mike, he's like, I'm you know, pushing 40 now and I don't want to be a coffee shop manager. He's like, we got to make some changes here. And I'm like, yeah, do you just want to buy this coffee shop? I'll give you a great deal on it. And we arranged something and now he took it over. So now he's he's sitting pretty because he, I mean, he does a great job with the coffee shop anyways. But now that Death Wish Coffee has a bunch of credibility and a lot of good buzz, you know, the community flocks there as the home of Death Wish Coffee and he does pretty good. Okay. So you're talking about switching your roles over time. I mean, did you have any mentors helping you and guiding you in doing all this or no? Or any anyone to lean on? Yeah, I think at that time, I really started getting into self-help, like really major self-help stuff. And since then, I haven't slowed down. What time? And this is 2013. Okay. Yeah, I started doing masterminds. I started reading a ton, a lot more. I started joining a lot of these industry groups. And I think shortly thereafter, 2014, I started with coaching. I did some Tony Robbins. I think I did Unleash the Power Within. That was a trip. Man, whew. How so? Tell us about that. Talk about getting outside your comfort zone at one of those things. Cause I'm, you know, I was an accountant by trade, right? I, I liked sitting. I, I thought I liked sitting behind a desk. And then when I was in the coffee shop world, I was always talking with customers, but it was always, you know, I was relatively reserved as a business owner. And then I go to this, you know, unleash the power within thing and they got you hugging and <laughs> dancing with your neighbors and you're like holding strangers and you can't really use the bathroom. Well, I mean, you can, but you know, you, you don't really want to. He lowers the temperature in there. So it's like 60 degrees. You're freezing your ass off. You got to pee real bad. And you're like, I don't know, crying and hugging your neighbors. It's, it was really, it was, I, I would say it's strange, but it's really effective. It was effective. <laughs> and looking back on it, it was quite the experience that kind of got me to, you know, really appreciate getting out of my comfort zone and, and how you can really grow yourself in a, a quick period of time if you're able to withstand the discomfort. And so were you able to apply from all these things, whether it's a Tony Robbins thing or the mentor groups that you're learning from? What were you able to apply to help grow the business? Um, well, so from like a overall standpoint, not a specific standpoint, but I just think it's that constant working on yourself that makes you not forget to get better. You know what I mean? And I noticed this the other day, actually, I have a coach now. I skipped my call with them last week for some dumb reason. <laughs> and I noticed that, you know, I noticed that towards the end of the week, I lost total focus and I lost Almost, I lost a little ambition. I'm like, am I getting burnt out here or what? I'm like, well, I didn't talk to my coach last week. So we didn't have like a, a plan built out for this week. And I don't know. Yeah. This, I just think it's constantly reminding yourself to keep working on yourself and getting better. Even though it's like a different thing every week, I don't think there's one specific thing I get from it other than just that constant, even if it's tiny, that constant improvement every single week. Oh, I think you're just getting nervous for this podcast interview, right? Knowing there are millions listening <laughs> to your story and that will bring you more traffic than a Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It seems like we talked a lot between 2013 and 2015. So how about maybe from 2015 to today, where have things grown? What mistakes have happened since then? Because it seems like 
after 2013, everything started doing pretty well. Has there been any dips since? So not in the revenue side. Luckily, we've been able to continue our revenue growth at a pretty decent rate. In 2013, I think we were doing around $3 million. The next year, 2014, I think we did around $6 million. And then, and where are you at today? Yeah, right after the Super Bowl. So in 2016, that helped us triple our revenue. So we were doing around almost 18 million that year. And then last year, 2017, I think we finished around 20, 22 million for the year. So our goal this year is 30 million. We have a, a lot of focus right now is kind of moving into some wholesale accounts. I've been 100% focused on online for so long, but our customers have been requesting that we get into their neighborhood grocery stores. So we're, we're focusing on that a little bit this year. But yeah, the dips along the way, I feel like every year, every year I have, there's a setback and it's always a little bit bigger. Luckily, like I'm very cash conservative. I try to keep a, you know, a decent sized cash balance to make up for these mistakes. I'm not like, I like to take a decent amount of risk. I like to let my team do the same. I'm not like up their ass all the time. I'm just like, here's the goal. Try to do everything you can to get there. So yeah, we make mistakes. And I think whether it's something silly, like investing a lot in a vendor that we feel good about only to have the vendor let us down and cost us a lot of money. I feel like we've done that. Jeez, a handful of times. And that always costs us anywhere from about $20,000 up to you know $100,000. Last year, we had a, a recall that I initiated and that cost me a little over a quarter million dollars. What was that recall? Yeah, we had a recall. We, we released our nitro cold brew. As we were releasing it, we had just started to release it. I uh, I sent it out to some scientists over at Cornell, and I wanted them to do a, a shelf life study on it and a, a safety study on it. And everything was going great. And actually, they, they kept sending us reports on how great it was doing, and there's nothing harmful in it. But right as they were about to sign off on whatever paperwork we had for them to sign off on to tell us it was safe and our process was good. One of the doctors noticed that he didn't like a part of our in our process that well, he thought could open up the risk of botulism to the consumer. Well, as soon as I heard that, I was like, well, if there's even a risk there, I don't want to take that chance. So I initiated a recall. No one ever got injured from it and there's never any botulism found. But because he thought that after reviewing our process on how it's produced and stored and shipped that because there's like, I mean, I could get into it, but it's like a low acid food thing and it's not put through a retort process. What's botulism? I don't even know what that is. I didn't know what it was either, but I do now. It is a, <laughs> it, is, it is a mold spore. So apparently under conditions where there's little oxygen, but mold spores, Spores. These mold spores could proliferate and cause harmful effects on people. So yeah, it's something to do with mold spores and it could kill you if it, if it ever got into you. Um, there's never been any found in coffee products, which is a good thing. And there's some food scientists out there that said it's it's impossible to grow on coffee, but I didn't want to take that chance. Um, well, especially with your coffee being called Deathwish coffee. Exactly. And that was, <laughs> and that was the kind of, that was the kicker, you know, because the media outlets, they really, we served it up for them there. You know, that that's Wish the... I think you'd be made fun of on every comedy show and your, I think your company would be gone the next day. It, yeah, it happened. It was pretty bad. But, you know, we handled it well. Like I said, we, we did it voluntarily. We contacted all the right people we needed to contact. I reached out to all my customers, sent them a video telling them exactly what was going on. I even went so far as to you know refund anyone who'd ever bought our cold brew in the past. 
just because I didn't want them to have to feel like they like we pulled one over on them or we were, we were taking any shortcuts, you know, and I'm trying to get this product out because we weren't. We were, I was actually taking every step possible to make sure this was the safest product. And unfortunately, could we have done it better? Yeah, we definitely could have done it a little bit better. I guess I could have waited until I got those results back until I you know released the product. But it was just going so good. You know, every day, every week, they're giving us these positive, great reports. And it's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> then a lot of scientists. Well, I think it's smart about being proactive on it, too, versus some companies wait till something actually happens and then there's the issue except you probably wouldn't even be there the next day if someone died from having something wrong with your coffee exactly yeah yeah luckily right there's no illness reported and so tell us what your day day now and as you know the owner versus what you had done in the beginning right so in the beginning i felt like i was doing everything but now that i have a great team now they take care of almost everything. You know, it's fantastic. The marketing stuff that I love, I don't get to do as much anymore. I, I will put my two cents in every now and again. Uh, the accounting side, I have a great accounting team. I just brought in a CFO. His name's Tim. He's a killer. He's great. He's uh, much of a positive impact he's having on not only the business, but on you know the rest of the team as well. Uh, my production team is, is growing and they're, they're doing great. We're putting out record numbers that we weren't able to do in the past. So I just kind of sit back and watch everything and keep watching the numbers. From your mom's house or no? No, no, no. I come in the office every single day yeah. and I participate. I try to support these guys as, as much as possible. Right now, we're working on our systems and procedures side. Just to, basically, I'm looking at to make sure that everything's, I guess, as you get bigger, the business changes a lot. And now it's not just doing things. It's we have to write down what we're going to do and do it. And then we have to go back and sign off on everything. So it's like, a, it's tons of paperwork and tons of uh, stuff that I never thought I'd really like doing, but I, but I do enjoy it to some extent. It's a lot of record keeping and making sure we're, we're doing the right things all the time. And so have you been able to get a new house? Yeah, I did. I just got, I got a new house last year. Yeah, my girlfriend and I moved in. It's got a nice pool. It's not over the top or anything, but it's nice. It's very nice. Sounds good. I mean, and then I think it's important to understand the transitions that you have to make too. Now you're more in a procedural systems setting now that you have a team, it sounds like, versus in the beginning where you're having your girl come from the coffee shop to your house and just kind of figure out what to do marketing wise. Yeah, it's like a lot of doing a lot of stuff in the beginning. Now it's a lot of planning and meetings and making sure everyone knows what's going on. So implementing all these communication systems and procedure systems and yeah, it's systems and procedures for everything. And it makes like a nightmare, but it is fun if you get the right team around you. I, I have a, a pretty good motivated team who's, they want this to be a world-class company and they're going to do anything they can, everything they can to make sure it is. And right now, right, right, that's our focus. We're trying to be SQF certified. So we're kind of working through that process right now. And it's, it's a big undertaking, but it's just going to make us better. Well, it sounds like you've been pretty good at hiring based on what you keep talking about your team. Do you have any tips on that or how have you hired these people to help you grow? I don't even think I'm that. I think I have a great team. Luckily, it's all kind of been hired through. They do most of that, their own hiring, if that makes sense. It started as like friends of friends, like people vouching for people. And luckily, they've worked out. I heard that could be a nightmare, but not in my case. I've had some consultants come in and help out with the hiring process. They've been helpful. I interview people, but I'm not the, the strong point there in, in getting the right people in. I got Tim. I actually hired a company to help me find our CFO, and I thought they did a great job. 
Well, it sounds like you have a good culture. I mean, because sometimes that doesn't happen over time, but has it always been pretty solid? Yeah, I think that's one of our strengths is just a very motivated, driven team. None of us are experts in the fields that we're in now. I feel like, like I said, I pulled all, my first few employees right out of my coffee shop. They were customers of my coffee shop and they're still working with me today. And we've kind of learned our positions through Google and through YouTube videos, just trial and fire. You know, it, we have that mentality of always kind of learning, seeing what's next. It's kind of bad, I think, initially because we lacked a lot of experience and we still make mistakes every now and again. Whereas if someone had a ton more experience coming in, we probably could have avoided some. And so what do you see for the future of you in Deathwish Coffee? Yeah, I mean, the future is good. Now, our goal at the beginning of this year is to be in 2,500 grocery stores across the country. And I think we've already hit that. And we're only a little more than a quarter through the year. So it's looking like we might be in 5,000 grocery stores across the country. Really kind of put a lot of emphasis on that wholesale side this year. Our e-commerce side is still growing. We have some fun marketing campaigns coming up. We have a this giant coffee truck that we had built, basically like a cafe on wheels. We're going to be bringing that to events around the country. I'm enjoying it every day. I mean, I, I like coming in. I like the consistency of it all. Working with the team, troubleshooting with the team. It's all a process. I hear a lot of friends and family being like, oh, I got to work on Monday. I can't believe it. It's you know going to be awful. But every day I wake up and I'm pretty excited to get into work. So I get into work early. I work late. I enjoy it. I enjoy the whole process, which is good. No, that's important. And what's early and late, just so like all of us have an idea of what type of work ethic we need to have in order to grow a company like yours? I might be an outlier here, but <laughs> I, I do wake up stupid early, but I go to bed dumb early too. I go to bed at between usually around nine o'clock, but I'm up at four and I'm usually reading at four. Uh, then I go, I do some stretching. I eat a very small breakfast, probably like a half a banana, maybe a little bit of coffee. I don't know. For some reason, when I eat, I can't think. And then I'll try to read a little bit more, check my email. And then I'm usually at work by seven. But even if I work by seven or eight, I already have all my emails from the day before already done in the morning. And then I'll work till like six or seven at night. And did you always have that routine of waking up that early? No, no. My coach got me on a routine. I was telling him my, my life seems like it's out of control and messy. And he's like, well, start with a, a routine every morning and see if you can do it 30 days in a row. And I did it 30 days in a row and it just stuck with me. So now it's you now it's pretty cemented in my head. I'm going through those motions. Even on the weekend, do you do that? Or is that just Monday through Friday? Yeah, it, it kind of overflows a little bit on the weekends. Unless I had a long night the night before, I'm usually up pretty early. Right? Yeah, I drink my water, read, stretch, have a something small to eat. And yeah, it's pretty effective. I'm really, my best hours are from the time I wake up until around two o'clock. After two o'clock, my brain gets a little fuzzy and I have a hard time getting things done. But usually a cup of coffee will can lift the fog to get me through the rest of the day. Yeah, that makes sense. I think this is important, these kind of little routines that maybe you're doing. Because I used to be the same way where once I got in a routine, I probably need to get back into that early routine of like just getting so much work done before you have those distractions. Because again, after lunch, how much more distractions are there? Like you were saying that after two o'clock, the type of stuff that you actually end up getting done versus the proactiveness that you have when it's quiet and calm, I guess, maybe between your same 4.30 and 7 in the morning. Yeah, I started keeping track of where I'm spending my time just by writing out basically where I am in the day and you know what I had just accomplished during that time period. And you know, I look back through my notebooks for the past couple of months and I noticed that I'm very good at keeping track of what I do right up until two o'clock. And then there's days where I don't even finish writing what I did because I'm just taken away by, I don't know, something going on in the building or people just walking into my office and, you know, having conversations or customers coming in, which I love, but I'll spend an hour hanging out with customers and talking to them. And it's just, yeah, they're valuable things, but the day gets away from you after that. 
I guess it's more of the, you don't need that focus thinking of getting something done versus those things are still important, but you can do that when you're more tired, right? When you're in the afternoon, it's a little bit easier to do that versus having to be focused on certain things you have to get done in the morning. So, well, we appreciate you spending so much time on the interview. Is there any question that I should have asked you? that I didn't or that you might want to address? Oh, I think that's pretty good. I think we talked about a lot. Yeah. We talked about a lot of the story. We talked about the team, which is great. I mean, that's to all the listeners out there. One thing I would say, and this has happened to me throughout my life, and I don't know what it is, but I've read this before in, in other pieces of work, but I guess I've lived it too. So that's why I think this is really true, is that right when you're at your last point of no return, like you're going to call it quits and give up on everything. It's right at that point where I think you're right about to succeed. And this has happened to me a lot. So especially with the you know, Death Wish Coffee, I was about to quit everything. And I just held on for like a couple of weeks longer and it really took off. So yeah, sometimes it takes that much because you're putting in so much time and effort, right? You were in the beginning and you're getting no payoff, it seems like. Yeah. And then eventually just holding on long enough. If you keep putting in the work, as long as it makes sense, then hopefully it should work out. Was that your last point that maybe going a little bit beyond your what you think is your your final yeah. final straw? Exactly. Yeah, just give it a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> just give it a little bit more. Right. Wait a little longer. Yeah. Well, and get a little nope. caffeine through. If people wanted to buy your product, what's the best place for them to buy it? Deathwishcoffee.com. You can go on there. You can get join our mailing list. You'll get great deals. So it'll probably be pretty cheap. Actually, right now it's cheaper to buy the coffee just with free shipping if you have Amazon Prime or the top selling coffee on Amazon for the last three years with the most five star ratings. So please leave a great review if you enjoy it. If not, shoot me an email and I'll figure it out for you. But yeah, Amazon or deathwishcoffee.com. We are moving into 1600 Walmarts in June. So we're going to be in Walmarts all across the country. It's going to be our single serve cups. Check out your other grocery stores as well, because we're probably heading there as well. We're in a lot of ShopRites, Safeways, Albertsons. You have the K-Cups right now as well. So if people didn't want to, I guess, brew their own or have the old coffee brewers, you're doing the single cups as well? Yep. We have the K-Cups, the single serve cups. Okay. They're fantastic. Well, ours are actually, we had ours tested. Actually, the ones going to Walmart are the new and improved ones. They are they brew stronger than any K-Cup on the market right now. So if you have a K-Cup machine at home or a Keurig machine at home and you're struggling with weak coffee all the time, this is a solution to that problem. Well, definitely go ahead and get a batch of that as well. And so if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Yeah, you can reach out. on. I'm on Twitter a little bit, not a ton. <laughs> but it's, it's eh. Let's see. Well, you don't even know your username, so uh, that's all right. <laughs> no, I got it. It's right here. Well, I mean, is there an email they can reach you at or what's the best place for them to reach you at? Yeah, you can email me at hey, H-E-Y, at deathwishcoffee.com. Is it H-A-Y or H-E-Y? H-E-Y. I don't know. Did I say A? I meant E-Y. I don't know. I don't know. You, you can spell it either way. H-E-H-E-H-E-Y at, <laughs> at uh, deathwishcoffee.com. And I am on Twitter at Mike Brown D-W-C. All right. Well, thank you again, Mike, for taking time to do the interview. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was fun. Guess what, Patreon members? I got our next five group calls already lined up for you. We got Jonathan Cogley from episode 85 taking your questions on how to find other entrepreneurs to partner with. Then we got Aviv Shogli for you, who's an entrepreneur from Israel. He's already had two successful business exits, and his interview is really inspiring. Next, we got Lisa Wise from episode 37, where she'll tell you exactly how she grew her real estate management company from the ground up and how you can too. Next, we got Ron Holt from episode 197, 
telling you how he grew two maids in a mop, not to be confused with two girls and one cup. And he basically grew his single location cleaning business to now a franchise model that covers 81 markets in the US, and he'll tell you how you can do the exact same thing. And last but not least, and by popular demand, we have Doug Smith from episode 182, which might have been our most open interview of all time. Well, anyhow, I hope you join us on these calls. I only invite my favorite guests back to do these group calls, and we try to have a good time while also getting your business questions answered. Plus, if you ever miss a call, we've got a back catalog of every group call. So if you're tired of, I don't know, being a passive pussy, then come join us. I mean, are you just going to keep listening to this podcast and not do anything? Or are you going to be proactive and get in the game? Well, hopefully it's the latter because it helps you and me. And if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member and you're not already, then go visit our website at millionaire-interviews.com and sign up today where you'll get instant access to all past group calls plus our special Patreon episodes. So hopefully you join us on the group call and become a member today.